Welcome back to Books with Bert. I'm continuing today with my book, New Deal or Raw Deal. Uh, It's about President Roosevelt, who was president in the 1930s during the horrible Great Depression. The title of this episode is, Why Did Franklin Roosevelt Fail? But before we get into today's episode, I want to remind you that if you like my podcasts and you want to learn more wonderful and forgotten stories in America's history, don't forget to rate and review my podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps. And don't forget to share with your friends and family, too. Last week, I talked about what caused the Great Depression and the problems with the presidency of Herbert Hoover. Those problems continued and were magnified under Franklin Roosevelt. Sometimes textbooks will say Roosevelt helped get us out of the Great Depression. But the statistics tell a different story. We had high unemployment, ranging over 20% of the workforce as late as 1939, which was almost all the way through his second term of office. In fact, Roosevelt's Secretary of Treasury, a man named Henry Morgenthau, made this statement in 1939, almost seven years after Roosevelt was elected. We have tried spending money. We are spending more than we have ever spent before, and it does not work. I want to see people get a job. I want to see people get enough to eat. We have never made good on our promises. I say, after eight years of this administration, we have just as much unemployment as when we started, and an enormous debt to boot. The question for today is why? Why did Franklin Roosevelt fail? Let's start with who Franklin Roosevelt was. The basic facts of his life are clear. He was born an only child into a wealthy Democrat family in Hyde Park, New York in 1882. He married Eleanor Roosevelt, a distant cousin, who was the favorite niece of President Theodore Roosevelt. Franklin's connection with his famous relative was one he cultivated and one that stirred his own interest in politics. Now, Franklin was attractive, a good speaker, a clever politician, and well-connected, all of which he used to launch his own political career. He had a setback. In 1921, he contracted polio and lost the use of his legs. But he continued his political career. From his wheelchair and thereafter, he was elected twice as governor of New York and four times as President of the United States. Roosevelt, as his battle with polio suggests, displayed great perseverance and skill in order to become president. His teachers and peers insisted he was no intellectual, but he learned quickly, either from others or from experience. Those were strong points that he had. However, he liked to be the center of attention and would exaggerate and stretch the truth to hold and impress an audience. Let me repeat that. He liked to be the center of attention and would exaggerate and stretch the truth to hold and impress an audience. He was very confident in his abilities. And like many successful politicians, he was charismatic. 
He attracted people to him, and people liked to be with him. Here is an important point, however. Given Roosevelt's wealth and opportunity, it may be surprising for some to discover that he was not at all gifted in the field of economics. In part, his family's wealth immunized him from having to learn how business worked or how to earn money. His mother, Sarah Roosevelt, described it this way. She said, and I quote, Money was never discussed at home. Living as we did in the country, there was no opportunity for spending it. All Franklin's books and toys were provided for him. We never subjected Franklin to a lot of don'ts. In other words, he was spoiled. He did not learn much about finance. Let me give you an example. The 1920s was a great entrepreneurial decade for the United States, but not for Roosevelt. During this decade, those with talent for enterprise, some of whom lived very close to Roosevelt, changed the habits of the nation by producing radios, air conditioning, zippers, vacuum cleaners, washing machines, talking movies, and even scotch tape. But not Roosevelt. He missed these investments. Instead, he pursued futile schemes to drill oil in Wyoming. He tried to sell stamps that were pre-moistened. He tried to corner the live lobster market, but lost $26,000, which is more like half a million dollars today. Often, Roosevelt's ideas were impulsive and whimsical. For example, he assumed airplanes were only a passing fad and he invested in a line of airships called dirigibles to fly from New York to Chicago. He said, I wish all of my friends would keep out of airplanes. Wait until my dirigibles are running. But they never were. Meanwhile, not far away, Igor Sikorsky was inventing the helicopter with no help from Roosevelt. Instead, FDR tried buying and selling German marks planting thousands of trees, and making cash with vending machines. But he never hit the jackpot. Toward the end of the 1920s, he also lost money in his resort for polio patients in Warm Springs, Georgia. And then to top that off, he lost more money farming the land nearby. Roosevelt's string of business failures did not surprise those who knew him well. One friend, Franklin Lane, who was in President Wilson's cabinet with Roosevelt. Lane was Roosevelt's Secretary of Interior. He said, quote, Roosevelt knows nothing about finance, but he doesn't know he doesn't know, end quote. He doesn't know he doesn't know. Therefore, Roosevelt tried one scheme after another, pursuing whims, not research, always thinking the next idea would be a winner. Henry Wallace who would become Roosevelt's vice president, liked his boss in politics, but not in business. Wallace had published a newspaper in Iowa, and he knew the patience and tenacity needed to earn a profit. Wallace said, and I quote, I reached the conclusion that I would under no circumstances ever have any business dealings 
with Franklin Roosevelt. Never under any circumstances would Wallace ever want to go into business with Roosevelt. Roosevelt's bad understanding of investment and economics creates a problem because he's going to be president during the greatest economic catastrophe in American history, the Great Depression. Roosevelt believed that the Great Depression was caused by what he called, and other economists called, underconsumption. The underconsumption thesis briefly states that the 1920s, although it was a decade of industrial growth, had many problems. The prosperity was not evenly divided. The rich got richer and the poor got poorer. Class divisions sharpened. And the tax cuts initiated by Mellon and Coolidge funneled more money to the rich while the poor got poorer. Soon, we had overproduction and we had too few people buying the goods that they were producing. Roosevelt said that careful planning and regulation are the cure. In other words, private enterprise failed and what we needed to do was tax the profits of rich people and give that money to poor people so then the wealth would be distributed more evenly and the poorer people could buy more products and that would help create American prosperity. However, the underconsumption thesis can be tested. Were the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer? Well, half of that is true. The rich in the 1920s were indeed getting richer, but the poor were also getting richer. And therein lies the problem. Let's look at the evidence. The wages going to employees of corporations during the 1920s rose from 55 to 60% of corporate income earned during the 1920s. In other words, employees were getting a larger share of corporate income during the late 20s than they were in the early 20s. The percentage of gross national product that went to consumption expenses did not fall, but actually rose from 68% in 1920 to 75% in 1927, 1928, and 1929. In other words, people in the United States were more capable of buying cars, radios, uh, vacuum cleaners, other products than they ever were before the 1920s. Free enterprise was working well. As we saw last week, the Smoot-Hawley Tariff, the Federal Reserve, wasteful federal spending, all of these government programs were creating the problem that helped got us into the Depression. But Roosevelt, with his poor understanding of economics, believed that private enterprise through underconsumption had got us into the Great Depression, and therefore he was going to have the wrong prescription. To give an example of the failure of Roosevelt's federal spending, I want to use one example today, and that's the example of the Works Progress Administration, better known as the WPA. It was a hugely funded organization. It received almost $5 billion, the largest appropriation of its kind in U.S. history. It was a huge amount of money, and let me describe how it worked. The WPA offered jobs to people who might be unemployed or at least underemployed 
in building roads, hospitals, perhaps school buildings, sometimes landing strips for airports, as uh, a way of giving them work and trying to improve the economy. Bridges were also included in this. Defenders of the WPA point to these projects as being useful projects. And that is a somewhat valid point. But other WPA projects merely duplicated existing facilities and were so poorly constructed they had to be rebuilt almost immediately. Of the make-work projects, reporter Frank Kent of the Baltimore Sun studied the WPA in action and wrote, Boondoggling on a gigantic scale is about to begin. Millions are to be spent giving piano lessons to the children of those on relief. Millions of dollars more will pay 7,000 men to write a guidebook of America. A disgusted congressman was here the other day telling of discovering seven men in an automobile going around his district counting caterpillars. Let's look at this in more detail. Henry Hazlitt, who lived during the Great Depression, wrote a fantastic book on economics entitled Economics in One Lesson. The book has sold over a million copies, and I highly recommend it. He speaks directly to the problem with the WPA. He says this, Every dollar of government spending must be raised through a dollar of taxation. If the WPA builds a $10 million bridge, for example, the bridge has to be paid for out of taxes. Therefore, for every public job created by the bridge project, a private job has been destroyed somewhere else. We can see the men employed on the bridge. We can watch them work. The employment argument of the government spenders becomes vivid and probably for most people convincing. But there are other things we do not see because, alas, they have never been permitted to come into existence. They are the jobs destroyed by the $10 million taken from the taxpayers. All that has happened at best is there has been a diversion of jobs because of the projects. In other words, the higher tax dollars that are taken from people are then shuffled into WPA projects, so you are not getting an increase in jobs, you're merely getting a transfer of dollars from one source to another. Let me give you an example. Because excise taxes under Franklin Roosevelt were raised on gasoline, movies, cigarettes, alcohol, uh, those people were having to pay, who paid those taxes were giving money to support the bridge or the counting of the caterpillars, or even hospitals or airports, projects that might be more valuable. That money is taken from those people. They no longer could buy shirts, coats, uh, or even automobiles because that money was taken in taxes. The income tax was raised on small incomes from one half of 1% 1 in 1932 to 5%. On top incomes, that is, the wealthiest people, they now had to pay 63% of their income in 1932, and Franklin Roosevelt raised that to 79% in 1935, the year the WPA came into existence. In other words, wealthy people are having to pay over half of the money they earn to the federal government to support projects like the WPA.
They are no longer able to invest in the American economy to create jobs in a steel industry, in, say, the movie industry, or in making air conditioners. That money is taken and it's diverted to building bridges or other kinds of projects. So we really don't gain much in the way of employment, and that's why unemployment was so high all during Roosevelt's administration. Now, the inefficiency and uselessness of many of the WPA projects was a serious problem, but a greater problem was the increased politicization of spending under the WPA. In the new rules, President Roosevelt was allowed much discretion in allocating and distributing the money for the WPA. He would have a strong voice in choosing particular projects, determining which states would receive what and which states would not receive what. The first problem with this approach is that it made federal spending a game of political manipulation. As Frank Kent, the reporter at the Baltimore Sun, said, quote, Every city and state needs its portion of this incredibly great sum of money. They all want as much as they can get. Failure to secure its proportion, that is the WPA money, places a state at great disadvantage. It means heavier local taxation. Thus, mayors and governors are obliged to woo Mr. Roosevelt. They must have the money and he has it to give. Roosevelt and his ally, Harry Hopkins, who was head of the WPA, began to play politics and allocate the money in their best political interest. Let me quote some Democrats to give you an indication of how this money was spent. V.G. Copeland, the Democratic County Chairman of Indiana, explained his opinion clearly. Quote, What I think will help is to change the WPA management from top to bottom. Put men in there who are in favor of using these Democratic projects to make votes for the Democratic Party. Another man, James Doherty, a New Hampshire Democrat, agreed. He said, It is my personal belief that to the victor belongs the spoils and that Democrats should be holding most of these WPA positions so that we might strengthen our fences for the 1940 election. Governor Arthur Seligman of New Mexico developed a common pattern. All applicants for WPA positions or other federal positions had to provide their political affiliation. An applicant had to tell what party he was in. Let's look at some of the implications of this. The WPA director in New Jersey answered his office phone, quote, Democratic headquarters. In other words, he's the director of the WPA for the whole state of New Jersey. He answers his phone, Democratic headquarters. That gives you kind of an indication of who is going to get what jobs. Also in New Jersey, Frank Towie was a congressman, a freshman congressman from Newark. He said in a speech, in this county, and he was referring to Newark, in this county, there are 18,000 people on the WPA. With an average of three in a family, you have 54,000 potential Democratic votes. 
Can anyone beat that if it is properly mobilized? So what we need to see when we watch Franklin Roosevelt conducting the WPA is a transfer of income from poor and middle class people through excise taxes on gas, movies, cigarettes, and alcohol into the federal government and the transfer of income from rich people through the income tax all into Washington. There it is centralized, and Franklin Roosevelt and his bureaucrats, led by Harry Hopkins, can distribute this money where it will do the most political good. Roosevelt can give money to states. For example, Pennsylvania was a state that the Democrats had not carried since before the Civil War. Roosevelt targeted Pennsylvania as a state he wanted to carry. He made sure Pennsylvania had a lot of WPA money. And indeed, Roosevelt carried Pennsylvania when he ran for re-election. Plus, the taxes on the rich also helped Roosevelt in this way. Rich people were often Republicans. So it was a transfer of money from Republicans to the federal government where the Democrats in the federal government would take the money and allocate it, target different states, different counties, uh, areas where there were voters that needed persuading, and give those jobs out to voters where it would do the most good. So President Roosevelt although he was a politically successful president, which we will talk about later, was an economic illiterate. He did not understand what caused the Great Depression, and therefore he looked for a cure in the wrong place. He increased the role of the federal government, we use the WPA as an example, when in fact it was the federal government through the Smoot-Hawley tariff, through uh, raising rates in the Federal Reserve, through failed spending on the Farm Board and other projects, it was those failures that got us into the Depression. It should not be surprising, therefore, that increasing dramatically this spending would perpetuate the Great Depression and lead to the situation described by Secretary of Treasury Morgenthau when he said, we have tried spending and it does not work and unemployment would be over 20% seven years into Roosevelt's presidency. The question then, why did Franklin Roosevelt fail? He failed because he did not use free markets and entrepreneurs to invest and bring about jobs Instead, he used the federal government and merely shuffled revenue from taxpayers to the federal government where instead of jobs being created by entrepreneurs, jobs were being allocated for political reasons by Roosevelt and the Democratic Party. I would like to recommend three books for you. And uh, of course, my book, New Deal or Raw Deal, describes much of the material that I've talked about today, but also Amity Schles has written an excellent book called Forgotten Man. That's a book on the forgotten man being the person who's paying the taxes and uh, not getting very much in the way of benefits. I want to recommend again Lawrence Reed's excellent pamphlet, Great Myths of the Great Depression. He talks about these issues. And then finally, I want to re-emphasize Henry Hazlitt's book, Economics in One Lesson. It's a great starting point for understanding the economics of the Great Depression. If you like today's episode and you want to find more content to fill your heart with love for America and for conservative ideas, be sure to check out 
YAF.org. The conservative movement starts here. Until next time, keep reading.